What is up and welcome to No Agenda where I have my internet friends come teach me stuff. Today I'm sitting down with Cleo Abram who will be teaching us all about storytelling with video. I'm obviously super excited. Cleo, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I have something to thank you before for before we get started, which is, you know, um, like when you want to sound smart with your friends and so you're like, oh, yeah, I was like reading this article. I forget what it was, like Wall Street Journal or something. But really, you just watch the TikTok and learn something. And it's because of people like you that I'm able to sound smart in front of my friends. So thank you very much, Cleo. Anytime. That's, you know, a big part of the goal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a super visual learner. So it's like definitely my style. But uh, yeah, it's it's really awesome what you're able to do and teach and all these interesting topics that you touch upon in short form and long form. I hope to get into all that stuff today. Um, and uh, we'll get into like specifically different transition points in your career. But I want to share a little bit of a bio for people who maybe aren't familiar with your stuff, which is basically, so Cleo is a video journalist. She's worked on series like uh, Vox's Glad You Asked, Netflix's Explained, um, and most recently launched her own independent show, which is called Huge If True. We'll talk a little bit about what that features and all. Um, did I miss anything generally? Uh, I'm sure you've done a bunch of other stuff. No, those are the highlights. I was a video journalist at Vox for about five years. Um, and last year launched Huge If True, went independent, uh, started my own production company and created this show that mostly airs on YouTube and TikTok, um, but you can find it everywhere. How did you end up at Vox uh, producing some of their best shows? Vox was um, my second job that I'd ever had. Um, I worked um, on the development side first. So that means that I was helping pitch TV shows. I was helping get our... Um, first uh, daily podcast, Today Explained, off the ground, um, launching new sections for Vox, things like that. And when we pitched Explained and it got greenlit, there was this moment of just total elation. Like this was the first big streaming show we'd ever um, sold. And it was one of the sort of first like digital media companies making a streaming show like that. Um, and it was the victory point of my whole career. And I was so excited. And that lasted for maybe five minutes because what I realized was the show was going to go get produced by people who had this uh, this skill for video storytelling that I didn't have yet um, and that my job was basically over. I was like moving on to the next development thing. And so that that moment for me really crystallized what I probably had known beforehand, which is that I wanted to be a video journalist. So I started going to night classes. I went to the School of Visual Arts, which I highly recommend in, here in New York. And... Um, I learned uh, editing in Premiere and uh, animation in After Effects and started to be able to make my own videos, which is the first step for anybody who wants to uh, make videos. I think being able to make the actual asset yourself uh, creatively is really important. Um, and I started making videos for Box on the side. And by the time the second season of Explained came around, anybody who made videos, which then included me, I was I was kind of like nights and weekends making videos while still doing development work. Um, anybody was allowed to pitch ideas for the second season of Explained. And Explained worked where um, there were 20 episodes, but each were discrete topics. So we were pitching topics to be part of the 20. What are some examples, just if people haven't seen Explained? Um, well, the two that I ended up doing were Diamonds Explained, the sort of history and science of diamonds, both scientifically and culturally and coding explained, which is really a, a name for 
the history of computing and how computing works and how computers work explained. Um, A couple other of my favorite episodes are um, my friend Joss did an episode uh, on CRISPR, the technology, and instead of taking the idea away from me and giving it to somebody else who had credentials and credibility to make the show, um, they ended up letting me make it myself. Um, So that was my very first job as a producer. I imagine you had to sort of power through some imposter syndrome, even when they gave you the job to say like, hey, Cleo, you know, we're going to take a chance and, and let you do this. Like how... Were, did you feel ready to do it? Did you have to like go figure out what the hell this was going to actually mean? It wasn't imposter syndrome, frankly. I I wasn't that good at the time, and I was getting better. And like what I felt <laughs> was, what I felt was a very real anxiety about improving this skill, um, and a very real desire to get better really really fast. Um, and so I did. It was my first ever job as a producer working on Netflix. I knew that my bosses who I loved and respected very much had kind of stuck their neck out for me and said like, no, she's kind of like, yeah, she's raw, but she's good. And like, don't worry, like she'll make a great episode. Um, And so I just, I worked constantly on those first episodes. I I really like, it's probably the hardest I've ever worked creatively and the most stressed um, that I've been on a show. And it turned out great. Like Netflix really liked them. I was really proud of them. Um, And and as a result, I improved really fast on that show and got to work with people that were way better than me. And so it wasn't so much imposter syndrome as just like I knew that someone, several people had taken a real chance on me and I really, really wanted to prove them right. Did you feel supported? You, you mentioned your boss and a couple other people. Like, were there other people that were going to help coach you through the video production of this thing? Yes, I would describe it as a lot of coaching, um, but mostly by example. Um, we were around other really, really motivated, creative people who were all producing their own episodes. And the way that Explained worked at the time uh, was that there was a showrunner, Claire, um, who oversaw everything. She's amazing. And when she would edit your script, it would just become so much better. Um, mm. But then we operated as kind of little fiefdoms underneath her. Uh, so we were very much in charge of our own episodes and and thinking up the story direction, doing the interviews, flying all over the place to actually conduct those interviews, etc. Um, and that was really fun because it meant that you could watch what other people were doing. Um, and we would kind of watch each other's cuts all together and critique them. And there was a feedback process. But you also got a lot of independence and a lot of creative agency. Um, I And that carried through all of my other jobs at Box. I think that one of the things that I really learned there was um, there's this idea that the head and the hands should be as close together as possible, which means the person that actually came up with the idea, if possible, should be the same person who carries the idea through to completion. Um, On YouTube, that often means the actual editing and animation of the video, um, which is one of the reasons, like I couldn't have possibly gotten to make Vox videos if I hadn't learned how to edit beforehand. And this might be a little bit outdated. Um, They might have, you know, uh, created different systems for working now. I I haven't been there in uh, at least a year. Um, But the the structure of that was really inspiring because it meant that um, it was putting a lot of the um, both responsibility, but also the creative um, agency on the person who had the original idea, which is awesome. Uh, But 
Also on Explained, I got the great privilege and I learned how to work with people who were way, way better than me at the specific thing that they were doing. So um, there was an incredible art director on Explained. There was um, an animator that I worked with. There was an editor who was just way better than I was. Um, so it's wonderful to be able to do the whole thing, but also to be able to draw in people and work with people that are so much better than you at that specific skill is just has has been a big boon now when I've gone independent because I really do believe that hiring a team and figuring out how to structure that production is like one of the biggest questions and challenges and and then yeah. potential unlocks for for independent creatives as well. A hundred percent. And there's so much that goes into a video. You see it at the end of the video. There's credits for like, you know, 30 seconds and all names of art directors and assistant producers and guy who holds the stick so that you know, the camera is in the right position or whatever it is like just on the subject of what a producer does in general, though, um, there are two basic categories that I like to think about, because this does just get very, very confusing to people who aren't mm -hmm. kind of attached to the industry. The first category is kind of money producers. These are the people that when you see the credits on movies that like producer or executive producer, they're almost always someone that was associated with the actual um, money management or um IP development of the, the video that you're watching. So whether it's a movie or a TV show, they like maybe they bought the script and then they sold it to someone and then they found a director and they like put together the financial and the structural model of how to make the thing. Um, that is not at all what I do. Uh, I was not related. That was kind of what I was starting to do in, de in the development world, um, but it's not what I do as a producer now. So they're like money producers that do that. And then they're, I guess what I would call like, I don't want to call them creative producers because the other producers are definitely creative as well. It's like editorial producers, which are um, a grab bag that means anything from the person who did the research and they're a research producer or the person who sourced archival, they're an archival producer, a person who, like me, was um, writing the script and then doing the interviews. Like I was just the producer of that episode. Um, sure. And often it's it's interchangeable in journalistic video with director because you don't want to imply that you directed anyone to say anything. I produced an episode. I didn't direct in, in I didn't direct my experts. Um, I, I asked them questions and they gave me answers. So that's what I do. That's the kind of producer that I am. Yeah, I think the latter is way more like operational and scrappy and kind of just like doing what needs to be done in order to get the job done. But I didn't realize there was this sort of category of like money producer that's uh, involved. It's interesting in that you said operational because I would have said operational is the other one. Oh, really? <laughs> this is the point. It's like it's it's all kind of mixed up. Like I think that the um, category of editorial producers might very well include a line producer who's the person who um, helps with planning all of the shoots and making sure that everything goes well and they're the they're the kind of um, the train director basically um, yeah, yeah versus yeah. versus what I was doing was like just I, I was just writing the script um, and and like reading the book and um, crafting the story. Part of what's coming through is probably my bias to working on shows that are very scrappy, that really there's only one person doing a bunch of the behind the scenes stuff. And then there's like the main host of the show. And so when I think producer, I think about like, who's reaching out to guests, who's like running socials even, or um, yeah, potentially helping out with some of the research and like behind the scenes stuff to make the show really good. But in any case, um, one question I had to you in terms of like working 
uh, let's call it maybe traditional media when it comes to things like Vox and Netflix. Like that's kind of what I think about. Um, even though there's probably an even earlier version of media that's like actual traditional media, but like whatever streaming media versus like YouTube, you know, you being an independent, um, you mentioned the importance of hiring the right people and structuring your team and all that stuff. Like what compromises have you had to make? Like what trade-offs, uh, when going from the being backed by a, a huge sort of organization with a platform to, you know, building this thing from the ground up. And I imagine having to bootstrap some of this stuff, like what, what has that transition been like? It's been wonderful. It's been a really interesting creative challenge. Um, so I went from a team of, I'm not sure what Vox was at the time, but let's call it like 2025 um, of uh, Vox's video team was a collection of um, video producers who were writing scripts and then editing their videos and maybe animating them. I often had help with my animation because there are people that are just so much better than I am at that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, then story producers that were editing scripts, helping greenlight ideas, making sure that everything was um, not only editorially sound, but deeply visual and the best story that it can be. Um, and so I was... Uh, one of the journalists writing scripts and I would have uh, a story editor who was with me making sure that it was the best story possible. But I often wouldn't have um, a lot of additional support underneath that. So people like associate producers, um, there were a couple at Vox at the time, but it wouldn't be as though they would be working with me on like research for a story very often. Um, and so one thing that Vox does incredibly well that results in them having just phenomenally great videos is they have kind of a bunch of independent creators that all make for the same channel, basically. Like they empower their journalists so much that that's basically the way that the team functions. So I actually, by the time I went independent, was very used to doing most things myself with the exception of like some beautiful animation and story editing. Um, and so I went when I went independent, you know, it's funny, a lot of the things that were, that I expected to be challenging were actually pretty easy. And the things that I expected to be easy were actually pretty challenging. And I'll give you some examples. Um, the example of something I expected to be easy that was actually challenging uh, relates to hiring and the people that I work with. Because when I was at Vox, every story that I ended up doing, I also pitched. So everything was like my idea and I was working on my ideas, which I've heard is uncommon at other media companies. You're sometimes assigned to work on various ideas. Vox doesn't work like that. Almost everything is uh, the, the video journalist's idea. So I thought when I went independent, it would be so I had all these great ideas. I'd always had great ideas. I was going to go make all of my great ideas. And what I forgot was that the way that it worked was almost always that I would come up with a pitch document that would have like three to five ideas on it. And my story editor, who are these brilliant people that had much more experience than I, I do in terms of uh, video journalism, um, would tell me what were good ideas and what were bad ideas. And not only were they helping me figure out what the great ideas were, they were helping me not spend time running down ideas that did not have as much potential. And so when I went independent, it wasn't that I had like a dearth of good ideas to, to make videos. It was that I no longer had this this incredible, brilliant Creative person te partner. telling me what what was good. I had to decide what was good on my own and green light my own ideas. Yeah, And that is actually an incredibly difficult skill, like not spending time running down things that like you are interested in, but don't make for good video. And I can talk about what makes for a good video in a second. But like 
I, I, at the very beginning, wasted a lot of time without realizing that my story editors had been solving this problem for me my whole career. If you haven't spent time on Cleo's page, first of all, you should, but also uh, her videos feature like really clearly in-depth research and um, really intricate animations to help tell the story. And clearly like she does her homework going into these videos. Uh, so just to add a little bit of color for people that haven't maybe seen it, right? I think what you're saying is, well, if you're gonna go spend a bunch of time on that, you wanna make sure the topic you're covering is actually worth doing a 20 minute video on. And I'm sure I may have even heard you say this in an interview that there might be some really interesting topics that don't actually have interesting answers. And so you end up spending a bunch of time doing something that it's like, oh, well, why has no one ever answered this? And it's like, oh, actually, because I don't know, a law was passed 10 years ago. And so they, you know, that's why it's not really, it hasn't really been worked on it. There's no solution for it or something like that. So what are your like, points of validation along the way uh, to make sure that this video is actually going to be interesting? I would say that there are three major points of validation. The first is, um, think about it like this. If you, are, if you and I are out having coffee or something, and yeah. I'm trying to explain something to you, some interesting topic that's in the news or um, a curiosity, the moment when I'm mid-explanation and I have to pull out a napkin and draw something for you, or I have to pull out my phone and show you a video clip and pause it and be like, this, like, see how they did this. If you have to use the word this, if you have to point at something, if you have to show someone something in order for them to understand it, that's probably a good Yeah, video. here, I'll just show you. Yes. Gotcha. Here, I'll show you, or here, look at this. The word this is almost always like one of the first couple words of my videos, because it implies that you're pointing at something that it implies that you're starting out with a really good visual. So that's the key. It's, um, is this story visual? But then the like, second part of that is not just does it have interesting visuals, like there are lots of stories um, where the, the thing itself, the question itself has interesting visuals, but you don't need the visuals to answer the question. So the, um, I don't know how to express this quite, but the visual has to, it's like one of those things, it's like the Supreme Court case on porn, you know it when you see it. Um, it. The visual has to be core to the explanation. So for example, um, when I was doing an episode on artificial wombs, I kept reading all of these different studies about different experiments that we had done on various parts of gestation. And so the visual that I had in my head that I hadn't actually seen anymore, but I was kind of drawing and putting the research in as I found it, was a um, basically an x-axis that was gestation that was um, from embryo to baby being born, um, and then the kind of y-axis that was sort of just different layers was different kinds of animals. So we've done a bunch of tests on mice. Like here's what that looks like. We've done a bunch of tests on sheep. Like here's but they've happened at a different part of the gestation. And so we're basically like cobbling together different research across the gestation period of different kinds of animals. And that visual to me helped explain why we weren't. Uh, like why this wasn't the matrix, that we're getting better at different parts of this process. You know, at the very beginning, it was on humans, it's IVF. And at the very end, it's saving premature babies. And you can kind of explain the landscape and you can answer the question of what might this technology look like through this specific visual. That's 
that's worth a video, in my opinion. Um, whereas, and, and things like that might be field shoots where you're actually going and pointing at the thing and, and helping people understand it by literally looking at it or demonstrations. Maybe you're building something and showing it to someone. Um, Can I tell or, you my favorite? Yeah, please. You were explaining, uh, which has been attempted a million times, but like the uh, basically wage gap between men and women and how it, uh, I, I forget what video, I think it was in the one where you're talking about whether you want to have a kid. Oh, yeah. And uh, how it can affect women disproportionately when after you have a kid, it takes you a while to catch up to what your salary would have been. And so Cleo and maybe Justin, we can pull this up just a clip, but like having a rock climber do like a blue wall and a pink wall and have them side by side and you can see... And you know why it's so good, too, is because they always uh, there's like a famous expression that's like they always talk about career progression in terms of like it's like rock climbing. It's not linear like you're going to go left, you're going to go right and stuff like that. So I thought even though rock climbing had nothing to do with career, like it was such a powerful visual to see you side by side with the person. And that kind of stuff just sticks with people versus like, you know, I could have read some Wall Street Journal article or pretended to. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? and in, in that show, that's a great example because that show was encouraging us to get out in the field. I probably would have done that, uh, that visual on another story by just having the charts and like doing a kind of good looking animation. But sure. instead we actually got to go out into the field. And what I loved about that moment was as my colleague Christoph was, uh, he was the kind of man and I was the woman in this particular sort of archetypal, like we were the the dots yeah, on the yeah. chart. Um, and we actually zoomed out to put dots on us. So you can see us climbing and the dots on the chart moving. And one of the things that I loved about that was um, he and I began to be at different heights on the wall, depending on where the data told us we should be. And so we were looking at each other from a distance but having a conversation about the data. And he was kind of looking literally down toward me and I was looking up toward him and feeling kind of jealous of where he was on the wall. Um, so yes, absolutely. Not a great I look think. for, uh, I don't know his name, but. <laughs> oh no, Christoph. He was, he was brave he was, to take on that role. <laughs> he was showing the data. Um, yeah, and, and I think that um, kind of visual storytelling is the key to what should be a video as opposed to frankly a great essay i don't i don't write great essays but like a new yorker piece um might be a deep dive on something that is totally fascinating but shouldn't be a video yeah. and video is incredibly high cost to make compared to writing um and so it it needs in my opinion it needs that visual and that doesn't mean that it has to be an explainer video like videos with great visuals can include um you know Emma Chamberlain is compelling because she's showing you herself. She's showing you what she's wearing. She's she's um, openly sharing her personality with the audience. And that's a visual exercise. Like a, a really interesting, compelling, charismatic person can be the visual just by themselves. Um, often totally. when I'm doing an interview and someone's getting emotional, like they're just telling me a story and I don't need to cut to something else. Like they deserve their... their um, uh, face on screen. It's their reaction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this applies to basically all forms of visual media that I can think of. Um, the desire, the, the need for it to be visual in order to deserve to be a video. We'll lose people if we nerd out on content the whole time. But I have one, there was one thing you said in an interview that uh, stood out to me. And it was the difference between content capital C and lowercase c. I don't know if that's a Cleo Abram original. Uh, it is, but I think. 
It is? Okay, yeah, you should trademark. That's great. Uh, I I thought about it a lot and, and it actually helped me think through how we are going to convert some of our, you know, I helped produce some long form content into short form and actually completely changing uh, the way we approach it because of that. So, but can you draw the distinction and, and help people understand? So I make huge if true on YouTube. We make 15 to 20 minute long episodes. And those are really deep dive episodes. Those require a lot of research. They require a lot of um, prep work. They require, you know, animations and like charts that we've compiled and things like that. The short form videos that I also make, um, the question becomes, how do you make uh, 60 second videos that are also that also deserve to be there, right? That aren't just trying to promote your other thing, but are actually meeting people where they are and are, are helping someone understand something interesting in the experience that they're having, which is probably scrolling, scrolling through TikTok or Reels or whatever. And um, what I had seen, and frankly, I tried, was people clipping the long form content that they had made into short form content. And I think that can work really well in a couple of cases where you're where you're deliberately translating one to the other. Like I've seen Colin and Samir alter the scripts that they have just a little bit so that the 60 second version stands on its own. I imagine that they're having these conversations and then they are crafting the short form just a little bit. Maybe they're re-recording another line, but they are thinking about it. The thing that I was doing was just trying to clip sections of my videos after they'd been created and putting them on, on other uh, short form media. That doesn't work. That is um, an example of, and I see a lot of people continuing to do this, of trying to repurpose the the capital C content that you made, this idea that we like make an asset and then we clip it up and then you reuse it on lots of different platforms. If it's not made for that platform um, and it's not, I don't mean literally like you have to make a TikTok and then you can't post it on shorts or something. You should do that. That's great. But the the format, you're not thinking about this is a vertical video. It's 60 seconds long. Like how would I best express this in 60 seconds, et cetera. Yeah. Repurposing the capital C content is like maybe you'll get a hit once in a while, but that's that's not it's not a good strategy. That's not a good strategy in my in my personal opinion and in my experience. Um, the other option is to think about this as repurposing the lowercase c content, the the content and it's like original use before we started using it to mean this other thing, the content of what you put together. So for me, that is the content of my videos is um, the research that I did and the actual information that's in that video. And maybe there's a chart that's the that's part of the, the content, what's contained in my video. And so what I do is I, I do the kind of groundwork of doing all of this research. I think about it, think about like a brick wall. You're building the layers of bricks up from the bottom. And it's like the first layer is like, you read like eight books and then you, you went through all of the charts that you could find on the internet. And then you compiled those charts um, and like made your own that were even more clear. And then you interviewed a bunch of experts and then you like interviewed a couple on camera and the, et cetera. So you have this, this huge uh, brick wall of research that's the bulk of the work. Like if I if I put a time chart of where I spend my time, like that's 80% of the time. And then above that, there's the layer of bricks that's like creating a story um, specifically for YouTube, writing a script, thinking about the outline specifically for something that's 15 to 20 minutes. That's like piling bricks on top of the wall to make a YouTube video. And then I think of my TikToks as like little tiny piles on different parts of the wall using maybe the same content and the same information, but also maybe using a fun fact that I learned while I was making this research that didn't end up making it into the YouTube video because it's not made for that. Right. So that's kind of the brick wall of your work 
should support all of the different little piles on top that become the actual assets. But if you try and build a pile just to be a YouTube video and then like chop it into bricks to be short form, it might work a couple times, but that's when you're lucky. It doesn't work as a strategy. Yeah, I've heard you describe it as like a, almost a cluster of content. And I like that mm -hmm. description because it in, is inclusive of like the long form video, maybe a couple short form clips, maybe a reaction video. Maybe you do a write up and you do a blog post about the thing that you learned that you had an interview with an expert and you want to turn that into a written piece or something like that. Um, yes, I think we all carry around a legacy of how we saw media in our childhoods uh, or maybe our young adult lives. Um, and that legacy doesn't need to exist anymore. Like there is no, that, that legacy was caused by um, literally scarcity of airwaves to put media in front of us on our televisions. And then a business model that required stopping every Every, if, a, if a TV show is an hour, but it's, you know, actually 45 minutes, you get 15 minutes once every, like, uh, a quarter yeah, yeah, of your yeah. time is stopped for it's ads. It's a completely different world. None of that exists anymore. There was a kind of opening of that world when Netflix came around and the opening of that world on streaming. Frankly, because the production systems still work pretty similarly to how Hollywood has always worked. Yes, there are some shows that experiment with the way that the length they can be and how in limited series and all of that. I would love to see more of that. I think that um, it's interesting that a lot of the television shows on Netflix are still about 45 minutes or 20. Yeah. Yeah. Or they cut it down, which which also existed on linear TV. Yep. But now if you think about what we do, the the work that you can make as an independent journalist or an independent creator doesn't have those same kinds of constraints. And so I think that we need to notice when those constraints are actually helpful. Maybe people like 20 minutes and, four, and 45 minutes. Maybe that's something that the audience is demanding because that's a sort of human attention span thing. I don't know. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so for me, a lot of my experimentation and creating of content is like, um, if you're doing, if you're gesturing at an interesting topic, like I want to cover electric planes, well then show people in 60 seconds when you went to go visit an electric plane company and you have to fly in one of the planes and that's cool. And that's a short form video that comes three weeks before you've had time to go edit your YouTube video. And then you're showing them a clip from an interview that you just conducted. And then that interview gets into the 20 minute video and then you post that and then you have three more produced videos that are like charts about electric planes, et cetera. So that's how I think about it. It's kind of like a yeah. join me on my journey as opposed to here's my finished final thing that, that you get to see in a linear way. I wonder uh, if it's because, and, and I don't know if I'm tracking your history of like when you started making content, right? But I think your first exposure was actually working in long form and then yes. spending more time in short form. So I wonder if you're able to approach it uh, like that because of that, because I see a lot of creators come up through short form and then try to launch a YouTube channel. And it's, it's mm. tough. It's like a completely new challenge and you have to keep someone's attention for 20 minutes and you're used to just like hooking people really quickly and, and keeping their attention for 30 seconds. And if it doesn't work, well, I only spent, you know, a couple hours on it. So it's not a big deal. Yeah. Although I, I was laughing a little bit because I have lots of other friends who make documentary and me calling my 20 minute videos long form, they would find hilarious. So That's it's, right. it's yeah, kind yeah. we of should have like... maybe laid out some definitions of like in my world, you know, eight minutes is like long form content. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely, and I think the thing that's interesting about that is, um, 
I now try really hard, um, and I'm I'm getting better at this on YouTube. Although, uh, when I set out to launch Huge If True, I thought to myself, I no longer have constraints, both sort of in a in a technological sense, like I'm airing on linear TV. Here's 45 minutes. Do what you want with it. But also in a yeah. creative sense, I could have a video that is two minutes long and a video that's 35 minutes long. I tend to write videos. I've noticed that I tend to write videos and choose ideas that are somewhere between eight and 20. Um, but I want to force myself to continue to experiment with that. And I think the interesting thing about length is if your operating principle is that you should give stories the amount of time that they deserve, then you allow the actual interesting information to guide you. Maybe this is like, Something that is 60 seconds shouldn't try to be my whole 20 minute video distilled. It should be like one or two pieces of information that are super interesting in 60 seconds. In the same way that if I were making a long form documentary, I would love to do that at some point in my career um, or a, a TV series. But I think when I would get to that would be like when I when I distill a, or or kind of find the massive boulder that deserves to be a documentary. Whereas right now I'm kind of I'm kind of operating with like medium sized rocks, which is a great place to be like YouTube right now. I think most people are trying to figure out and if you have lived mostly in the short form world, you are looking for ways to expand that. So it's it's interesting to get your perspective of even trying to expand that further and one day produce, you know, larger and larger projects because, um, yeah, with that with asking for more time from your audience, you also have the opportunity to have a more lasting impact with that asset or whatever it is. Maybe. Um, I don't, short I mean, form in some cases tends to like come and go, I think. Maybe. I am very, very interested in the lasting impact of short form as well. I think the idea, and I'm trying to get away from this bias that I have myself of, if I make something longer or more highly produced, it will get more of an audience and have more of an impact. Like. The truth is that I've made TikToks that have that people know me for much more and long form videos that I've worked much, much harder on that fewer people have seen. And it's not that I measure by number of people who have seen them, but like I have been able I, I made a video once that was like 45 seconds long that was literally just showing people a chunk of the internet cable that goes under the ocean. And it became like massively bought. Like people have not seen that yeah, before, yeah. I guess. And so it, it was just very, very interesting for them. And, you know, if I think about my goal as helping people better understand the world and feel awe at what we've been able to accomplish and feel inspired to accomplish more, like that short form video arguably accomplished much more. Than, right. Like, what difference does it make if it was a, a 20 minute video or a, or a three minute video? I think about that a lot. Yeah. You spend a lot of time like researching emerging technologies. And I was thinking like in five, 10 years, I mean, if you keep doing this, which it sounds like you're kind of committed to this, like doing all these different topics, um, you're going to know a lot of stuff, right? Inevitably. Like, have you thought about, uh, do you ever get approached by startups to invest? Uh, have you thought about like a career in investing in technology and things like that? Oh, I yeah. work for a VC, so it, it's just like it immediately came to mind. In fact, I'm glad you brought this up. I am a part of the 776 Titans program, which I cannot say mm. enough wonderful things about. The insight here is that uh, people who have audiences and that have specific areas of expertise might either have access to deals or the expertise to analyze deals that, that a VC firm might, might not immediately get access to. Um, so I am one of the Titans implies 
12, but I believe that there are more now, maybe maybe different rounds. Um, uh, I'm one of several creators who has had the opportunity to be invested in by 776 as an LP, and they helped me start my own solo GP fund. Um, the other people uh, involved are, for example, um, Marquez Brownlee, um, Simone Yech, like people who have audiences, have areas of expertise. Um, I believe the focus is on people who are generally underrepresented in venture capital, um, but people who could be, uh, there are Olympic athletes involved, there are you know, creators like me. Um, and so the idea is, I haven't made any investments yet that directly relate to stories that I'm working on. I think journalistically, that that's just something that I wanna be wary of. Um, so it's pretty separate for now, but the way that this generally works is that I am interested in and constantly looking at lots of different new technologies um, and constantly talking to people um, I found really interesting. And so have had the opportunity to work with a couple of them um, in, a, in a separate way than I have uh, with the Huge of True Show. I realize some of the topics you're investigating are like super futuristic things, but you know, that VCs tend to be outward looking 10 years, things like that. So I'm really interested in, in the ideas that that do sort of follow the spirit of Huge If True, which is this is something that could meaningfully change people's lives in a huge way um, that may have an underlying assumption that needs to be proven out. Maybe there's a technology that we need to further develop. Maybe there's a behavioral change. Maybe there's something, you know, I think um, the kind of like the big swings kind of investing, especially because just to be clear, like these are very, very small checks i'm i'm just learning totally, uh, totally. how yeah, to yeah. how to um participate in venture capital and so for me i'm really interested in people who who follow that spirit i think venture capital could maybe use a rebrand and huge if true i feel like is is <laughs> <laughs> well i got the term from like definitely the way that it was being used in silicon valley i there's kind of a snark to it as well um i love the name huge if true because it it couldn't it can be used in so many different ways i can say it in multiple different tones of voice and you can tell whether or not i think a technology is going to be like genuinely transformative or like a terrible idea so cleo I know we had set out on this mission to uh, give people somewhat of an education on on maybe your process for storytelling. You've done this, you know, tens, if not hundreds of times. Um, and, and I really enjoy sort of like your, the, the I guess, methodology or, or I've seen like commonalities in the videos that you've produced. And so I'd love to unpack that a little bit with you and learn kind of your style of video storytelling. So I'll keep it open-ended for you or we can go in any direction that you think makes most sense. I actually would love to do this in kind of a real-time demo way. Um, love it. I figure we can try this out uh, and see if we can come up with a really good video outline or story together just by chatting yes, about it. Yes, let's do it. What, do awesome. whatever you want. You, do you want to share something or do you want to just talk through it? No, I just want to talk through it. Okay, perfect. So give me, tell me an idea or maybe a couple ideas that you think would make for a good video explainer. Like what are some questions or topics that you've been curious about lately? Okay, rats in New York City. Okay, what about rats? Why are there so many? Why are there so many rats like, in New York City? Uh, why, like who's working on it? A solution if anyone is. Uh, Cleo's also... I believe in New York City as well. So as two New York City natives, like, why do I always see rats all the time? In summer, it's crazy. This is clearly a problem. Uh, New York City is a very, you know, 
developed and uh, we have everything in abundance and technology everywhere and it's you can I can get a whatever a burrito delivered to my house at 5 a.m. but like I'm stepping over rats literally live and dead to go to work every day like what's up with that Okay, so that's our guiding question that we want to answer with this video. And I think one of the things that's that's really, really important is to preserve your um, un, unexperienced, your like non-expert question. One of the things that's tricky about making any kind of journalism, whether text or video, is by the time you finish the research, you've forgotten what made you like so curious, your curiosity hook at the beginning. And so you've lost touch a little bit with the person who doesn't know anything. So you need yeah. to remember who you were when you were the person who didn't know anything. That's, that's really okay. important. So basically, imagine you're writing a Google Doc and you put a little box at the top and you type in your question. Like, I want this video to answer, like, why are there so many rats in New York City? Like, we have everything, but we still have rats. Like, what's going on? Um, maybe that becomes your like subject and, and thumbnail. Like you think about the way that you would help people get into your story at right right there at the beginning. Love that. So now we're in the process of making a video. We're like on this so you journey. You have to be a, emotionally detached from the issue because that's very much not the case here. No, no, no. In fact, okay. <laughs> uh, one of the one of the most interesting parts of going independent has been playing with that line. Like I used to speak much more from the explainer voice because that was appropriate when I was when I was uh, at a media company. For someone else. Yeah. Um, but now, like that artificial womb episode that I mentioned. It happened to occur during a time period when I had to get surgery on my own, um, on my left ovary to preserve my fertility, which is a longer story. I'm totally fine now. Um, and I just sort of put the surgery in the video. I was like, I care about this because I'm struggling with this right now. Um, and so the yeah. idea of artificial wounds seems great to me right now because I am so worried about my own fertility. Like that's, that's a Amazing. wonderful, like personal, if you have a personal story, great. So maybe one of your like, your visuals is like you you see a bunch of rats outside of your apartment and you take pictures of them or video of them like multiple Easy. times a day and you're like this is like look at this like that's kind of a gross visual and you're like look at this like i hate this like what's going on with this mm -hmm. um it's gotten to the point actually where i and have experienced exactly this so often that i almost think they're cute like, I want them to stay far away from me, but I, like, almost don't <laughs> mind them anymore because, like, I'm so used to the rats in Eric. Anyway. You have to so, learn to coexist. Otherwise, you Yeah, they're, like, they're like squirrels, but uglier. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we've got this visual of, like, there are so many rats in New York City. Um, now we're going to start, we're creating two documents. The first is going to be like, drop in all of your research. This is I call this an info doc, but it could be like a just a research doc where you're um, generally you probably want to create sections and you just drop you're like doing lots of online research, you bought a book on rats, and you're dropping in all of your your what you learn. The other document is a visual outline. And it's really important that this is visual and not just what you want to say in the story. So literally, instead of um, having like, a story that you create like an outline for an essay, you're literally going to write visual and then you're going to describe the visuals. So for example, um, visual, shot footage, rats on my street, like 10 right. examples. Um, visual. Uh, and now our, our struggle, the big challenge is what are the visuals that explain the answer to this question? If there are no visuals, then we're going to have to scrap this video idea, but I bet that there are. So just as like a, a cursory um, 
like thought process here. I bet you that there are maps of New York City that show where the rats are most. Heat maps. Heat maps of rats. And if you wanted to drill into that a little bit, I would bet that the data point there is like, well, I'm not sure rats. how we, uh, no, I'm not I think sure how reported. we track rats. Reported rats. Yeah, yeah. I've like little bit looked into this and there's definitely, you know, although who the hell is still reporting when you see a rat anymore? Oh my God, this is amazing. So there is a rat information portal uh, on the New York City Health website. RIP. <laughs> and this is this is a heat map of rat activity in in New York. Right. This is amazing. It's it's colorful. It's green and pink and purple, and it's telling me where the rats are. This is totally fascinating. Okay. It's dynamic. Yeah, you can zoom in. You can see basically like. Well, well if we're tracking them, why aren't we killing them? <laughs> oh yeah, so so we're tracking them. So it's like. Um, it's like you know the the airplane one where you can see like where every airplane in the world is. Like that's what I'm kind of imagining. Yes. Um, it's basically, so this is, um, this is rat inspection. Okay. Um, so this is basically like per block if there were rats there during the last inspection. Okay, cool. Okay, great. Um, so there, there's a rat heat map. Um, that's a great visual. So the, the story might, the first answer to your question, there, there are sub questions under why are there so many rats? One of those questions might be like, where are there many rats? Are there many rats just in my neighborhood? Is there, Are we talking about New York? Are we talking about New York State? Like, no, we're talking about these particular areas. And New York City is like so many different cities in one that actually we're just talking about, um, you know, maybe my suspicion is that Brooklyn has more than New York. Like, oh, that's not true. Totally. Maybe it's areas with lots of restaurants. Like, oh, that's interesting. So there are specific neighborhoods. Yeah, residential versus like, you know, Times Square. Interesting. Right. Okay. Um, so this is amazing. There are actually a lot of really incredible maps about rats. Turns out I'm looking okay. this up right now. Um, okay. So so that's interesting. Um, there are there, that's a great visual that answers part of this question um, that might tell you uh, that might lead you into another question. So in the same way that when you're talking to someone who writes fiction, they'll say um, a really good fiction script doesn't go. Um, you know, this happens, then the, and then this happens, and then this happens. Um, if you have the words and then, you know that you're just putting like events together in order. That's not a good story. It's got to be um, this happens, so this happens because this happened. Like it, it has to have a, a flow. It has to be causal. Um, it has to lead from one to the other. Um, or it doesn't have got to be you. causal, okay. but it, it does have to have a relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the same way, you want your questions to lead from one to the other. It's not just a list of facts. We're going on a journey here, right? So right. you there found are a ton this... in the West Village. Why? And then you investigate the right. sort of like. Turns out that it's because this map, I'm looking at this map right now. Um, it's, it's an interactive rat sighting map. This is very interesting. Um, and it shows that they are in neighborhoods with a lot of restaurants. Okay, so that tells me something that like I could have intuited, but it's much better to see in visuals. Restaurants lead to rats. Okay. Um, so then now I want to know, like, do restaurants in all cities lead to rats? Like New York seems to have more of a problem than other cities, right? So maybe we have a comparative like rat maps of different cities in the United States. Like, okay, that's interesting. Um, 
It also seems to be the case that rat sightings began to go up um, starting in 2014, which is interesting. There's a big increase starting in 2014. Um, and then there's an even bigger increase during the pandemic. Okay, so why did those things happen? Like maybe it's a temporal... They got a little cocky. They got the a little humans cocky. were leaving. <laughs> they also, I forget where I know this, but I happen to know this fact, they moved locations. So if you watch this map and the map, and you allow the map, you get enough data so the map evolves over time, you're going to see map rats during the 2020, 2021, 2022 move from the neighborhoods with lots of restaurants. The restaurants shut down and all of the residential areas became much more rat friendly because they had all the food mm, because people weren't eating out so now we have some information where like it's actually not restaurants it's human beings eating like okay that's very interesting because we saw a change when humans move the rats move okay um so maybe this is leading us into a different answer like this visual is answering the question so the key visual of your story is this rat map um and a couple other visuals come into play on your little outline. So you say, like, on your outline, it's like visual map of rat sightings in New York. Um, and you start with, like, 2010 to 2014. Um, and you see that there are more and more rats. So New York's population is increasing. Rats are increasing. Okay, next visual, rat map again. Um, and so that would be, like, a, a data viz, like, visual chart increase of human population in New York visual data viz increase of rat population in New York. Um, and then you go back to your key visual. Like here's the rat map again. The rat map is gonna be um, from 2014 to 2020. And then visual rat map again, 2020 to 2022. You're gonna see this like massive shift, right? To, to the residential areas. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, and then uh, one of my big questions is, uh, what was going on with the trash? during the pandemic? Like, where do we put out trash? So maybe now there's a visual um, map overlay where you overlay where the trash is put out and you overlay the rat map. And you're probably going to see the where the trash is put out, the rats are. Um, and there are different kinds Part of, of trash. Part of me would want to chase the, the, yeah, the rabbit hole of like, why is there even so much trash on the street to begin with? But then that ding, feels ding, like ding. maybe we're veering off too far from the rat thing. I don't think so. I think that you should go where the story takes you. So you're curious, like if the rats moved from restaurants to residential during the 2020s, um, did what caused them to do that? How did they know that the humans were there and not at restaurants? Well, humans were putting out all the food trash. Restaurants weren't putting out any food trash anymore. Humans were, or the, the people in their apartments were because we were all ordering in. Yep. Um, so... The rats move with the trash. Okay, how do we deal with trash? Turns out that New York deals with trash in like a pretty different way than most other cities, I think. Again, I'm speculating here. This is me doing absolutely uh, no research. Yeah, you take a walk around my neighborhood. <laughs> right. I, I'm pretty confident on that part. So like um, we see different visuals of how uh, like visual archive Different, how different cities approach their trash. So you yeah. see a street, like on trash day, a street in Washington, D.C. looks very different than a street in, um, you know, Topeka looks very different from a street in New York. Like in New York, we have these like massive piles of trash. Like what the fuck? Right. And how often are the trash people coming and why aren't they coming that often? Because it maybe causes right. traffic and we're on a 
I forget sometimes, but we're on a fucking island. Right. So your first section is a visual story of where the rats are and how that has changed over time. Your second section is a visual story about how New York approaches trash and how that's different from other cities. And your third section, probably, I mean, the answer, the question that I would love you to tackle in this video is, could we make this better? Like, why is New York so different from other cities? Like, why do we just pile our trash on the street? I made this point to my husband recently. I was like, like, there are other cities where you have um, those big, basically like, containers, not not trash cans, but like massive, the back of a truck where they gather yep. all the blocks trash and then they take it away every week. Like that's how trash works in a lot of different cities. And uh, maybe they deliver that dumpsters. on a certain day. And, yeah, it's yeah. a dumpster. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Um, no, no, it's okay. clearly you've been in New York for a long time. Like other cities have these things. They're like these boxes where you take the bags and you put them in. Oh my God. I'm telling my you, parents- there's this juxtaposition of how advanced we are and like tech innovation of the world. San Francisco, ironically, has a huge problem as well. And it's just like... Right. So maybe then you have like visual juxtaposition, like shiny New York buildings and New York trash, like over and over and over again. Um, Yeah, yeah, Yes, my parents are going to be very embarrassed for me because I have not lived in New York my whole life. And I just forgot the word for (laughs) dumpster. Like I have been here too long. (laughs) I don't blame Um, you. So... So now the question is, how could we improve this? Like, why doesn't New York use dumpsters? And this is the part where um, like a, a... great video deserves some nuance. Like, I bet you that there are a lot of really smart people who deal specifically with trash in New York. Like, for all of the fact that we pile trash on the street, um, uh, two days ago, there was a trash bag that was, like, broken open and scattered across. I think, like, a dog got into it, scattered all over my street. Within three hours, someone had come and cleaned it up. Like, there was not consistent trash scattered all over the street. Like, we actually have a pretty good, reliable cleaning system. You can put out furniture and it gets taken to the right place. Like, New York Hilarious, has a... by the way. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it probably gets taken by a person first, but New York City will take yeah, yeah, it yeah. Um, and, and deliver it somewhere. Like, uh, they have... Um, I'm thinking about, like, oversized pickup. Like, there's a system here. Um, what is that totally. system? Who developed that system? Like, you could, pr- you probably have a flow chart of your visual here where it's like, if this, then that. Like, here are the departments that work on this. Like, here's the analysis of why New York trash works this way. Maybe it's because we're on an island. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's because we actually have small streets. We were, we're a pretty old city, especially in the lower parts of Manhattan. Like, why, why are we so different? So, so now you've taken me on a journey through why are there so many rats in New York City through an explainer about the systems of trash that cause rats and how they're like, you know, the, here's another solution that we could approach. We're not doing this correctly. Maybe that's your last take. But you also gain an appreciation for like, there are hundreds of people who think about just trash in New York City. And like the trash people that, that take it away are like valiant workers who are doing incredible an incredible service for the people in New York. Like you have an appreciation for them, but you also have an appreciation for like the problem that they're facing. And the problem is rats. Yeah, yeah. If it was so easy, it would have been solved by now. There's people working on it. And it's the question is more with all the professionals and smart people and technology that we have, how is this thing still such a problem? Um, and also a side thing I wanted to, I think would be a cool little rabbit hole to chase down is uh, reproduction. Like, are these rats each just having hundreds of babies? And so it's that's why it's growing so much. Right. And I bet your visual there, that's actually a section that I was thinking about as well. I have, like a, I have an idea for a visual there. <laughs> what is it? What is it? I was going to say, you ever see two rats in the subway, like, getting after it? 
yes, right. So visual, like rats fucking in the subway. Um, and then like visual, like, like maybe there's something different about rat reproduction that we need to understand better. Like there's a, yeah. a rat scientist. There are people that study rats. Like you interview someone who studies rats and they show you like a, a, you know, a rat skeleton and a diagram that explains rats. 100%. Um, and, and one of the things that I am so interested in, just sociologically, uh, I was not interested in this before, but now talking about you, I'm like, I'm I so I love interested. that you've come on this journey with me, by the way, because I, I felt it when I gave you the topic. I was like, God, I'm so passionate about this, and Cleo's just not with me yet. Yeah, no, but here we go. Here we are. Um, one of the <laughs> things that I think is kind of shitty is I, I feel like automatic love for squirrels. I think they're super cute, but they're just street rats with fuzzy coats. Like right, they're fuzzy right. tails, and like I'm like discriminating against the poor rats. Also, they, they have like, don't rabies have the and stuff. Tails. Like they, they're like right. fully like. Why are diseases? we so okay with squirrels? And also, like, do squirrels operate differently than rats do? Like rats, I have the impression that rats eat a lot more trash, and squirrels eat a lot more like nuts in trees. But I might be totally wrong about that. Maybe that's just my bias. Yeah. So now you have a section on human bias. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet it was some fucking Coca-Cola marketing campaign where they like painted the rat as right? a bad guy and now exactly. the rat and now like And now and now visual visual Disney clips of rats being the villain. Rats are the villain yes. in lots of movies. Oh my god. This is coming together. I might give this a shot. <laughs> I'm going to make my YouTube debut on, uh, since you didn't give me any, I was hoping if you gave me a runner up for huge, if true, I could steal it and make my own YouTube channel. That was You could have. Sorry. I didn't have any other good ideas for sure. Well, now I do. Now I'm just going to make it rats and the explanation videos of rats. Um, but no, here, are the key, here are the key things here. Number <laughs> one, you started out with a question that we found out does have an interesting answer. There's a whole bigger story behind your question. The question isn't just like, um, Actually, it's kind of hard to think of a Why are there so many rats? It's kind of hard to think of a question that wouldn't lead to an interesting story. Like any question could. You just have to find the the meat on the bone. Um, so you started with an interesting question that people can relate to. You discovered that there is an interesting explanation with a bigger story about trash and trash management. And you have a key visual, that map that, that you have to see in order to understand the next part of the story, where like you see the rat population and distribution change. And you're like, oh, that's why I know, like that's how I know that it's trash. And then you see a key visual that explains the trash problem. Like it's a comparison between cities. Like you can't, we could explain this to each other because we're describing visuals, but like it would be much better if over the course of a coffee, I just showed you the thing. Um, right. That's a great video. Um, and yeah, then yeah. you can the this thing add that to you it mentioned you earlier, want. like 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 this, like you see how they're always all over the street. You know what I mean? If I was explaining this to someone in New York City, it'd be fine. But if I'm explaining this to someone who lives in Columbus, Ohio, they're like, "What do you mean? There's fucking rats." everywhere yes. and i'm like no no you don't understand like they're just everywhere <laughs> by the end of your visual outline you should be able to basically almost without talking show people a list of visuals and they understand the story so story. at the beginning of the document there's a picture of a rat or like many rats in your street and i'm like oh why why is that happening then there's a map of the rat population then there's a map of the rat population changing. Like, huh, that's interesting. That's visual. I don't need you to tell me anything about it. You you would write voiceover. But like, like, oh, totally. I see it. I can understand it without any any anyone telling me anything. Then there's a picture of like 
trash bags in New York streets. And I'm like, oh, obviously the rats attracted the trash. Got it, et cetera, et cetera. And so by the end of your visual outline, you should basically need to do no, no descriptive work. The visuals tell the story by itself. And then your job becomes so wonderful and so easy because you're just like, like putting in the visuals to a script and then and then moving people from one to the other. Look at this. Now look at this. Like now look at this. That's basically the bulk of of your work from there on. I love the the two column thing that you've described. I've heard you talk about that in an interview too and I think like literally having a document that's structured in a way where you have to side by side forces you to say, you know what? Like I can kind of just write a script for this. Like there's no reason for this to be a video. So, uh, I appreciate you taking us through all that. The two column scripts, just to tell people what you're talking about, is on the far left side, you have the voiceover, but in the middle, you have all of the vi visuals that you came up with in your visual outline in order so that people understand the story. And then you're just yeah. adding um, the the text to the side to guide people from one to the other. And then the third column, actually, I write three columns. The third column is sources. So you can go back and fact check. Right. Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's important. Sometimes I'll write something down and I'm like, where did I? I heard this exactly. on minute 32 of a podcast that I listened to two weeks ago. Um, Cleo, this has been awesome. Seriously, like one of my favorite lessons, obviously I'm biased here, but uh, I was uh, a little nervous about this because I was like, how do I interview Cleo? without making it obvious and just like into a into basically a coaching session for you to teach me how to like eventually have your job because like that's kind of what I'm even working towards. I mean you already level. have like, it. Yeah, sort of. I have more like the Vox version where you were working with Netflix and helping a company produce. So uh, that's kind of how, where I spend most of my time and it's awesome. But I hope I kept this broad enough for people to relate to and hopefully people take away i know for me like the storytelling part um and and i appreciate you i know it's not easy to like do this kind of on the spot or maybe it is but in any case it was helpful to to go through it with one of my ideas it's super fun people should go subscribe to cleo's Inst or well instagram tiktok but also youtube which is where most of the like long medium form whatever you want to call it explainer videos are on huge if true anything else you want to plug cleo no, if you search Cleo Abram, huge if true, you'll find my stuff on YouTube and TikTok. Go watch her videos. Sound smart to your friends. Uh, <laughs> learn something new. She investigates way more interesting tech emerging topics than my stupid question of rats in New York City. But It was uh, a great video. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to make it. Thanks so much, Cleo. Thank you. Thank you.